Hi, I'm Dr. Toxel Ruck. And I'm Dr. Christine Anderson. And we are so glad you joined us today for our second episode of Your Baby's Brilliant Brain. And we are so excited to have a guest on our show today. And her name is Erin. And she is a patient that came to me when her first child was a baby. And she's going to tell you all about herself and her journey with not only child number one, but with number two, and what she's learned in the process of this thing we call parenting, which is such an adventure and such a journey. So hi, Erin, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm always happy to talk about the motherhood journey because as you said, we're always learning and I think just sharing our story um, is just helpful to the collective process and experience of, of this big job of being a mom. Yeah, and I think you have a lot to offer moms because not only do you have experience as a mom with one child, but now you have two. And just that whole thing of, of learning, um, you know, what you did with child number one, is that working for child number two, um, and, and more things we learn along the way with meeting with moms and talking and connecting, which is huge because we don't have that community that there used to be with grandmas and moms around to help us. And so it's like, we're just sort of left out there going, what are we doing? Right. Exactly. <laughs> so I think we'll start by, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of your background, how you were raised and any major, you know, life changing experiences led you to where you are today. Yeah, I think, um, well, I feel very fortunate. I grew up in the Bay Area in Northern California, which I think was, um, I was a child there at a very special moment in time and place. I think the Bay Area uh, has been kind of a center for progressive thought. And I feel like the older I get, the more I actually appreciate the childhood that I had. I think it was a very, um, cre- you know, child-focused, creativ- pro-creativity, pro-child place to grow up. Um, my parents did raise me with more of a medical mainstream approach, but I was fortunate that my parents themselves made a lot of healthy lifestyle choices. So I definitely grew up in a home where you know, we always had fresh food that was purchased that same day. There was a big um, culture of cooking and everything at least being fresh, Um, sometimes even, you know, from our own little garden. So, you know, I've certainly fine-tuned my own diet over the years as I've grown up and learned more, but I think just like the culture of, you know, I I certainly never went to um, any type of fast food or anything like that. And talks like heard you speak about that in the first episode too. And that was actually unusual at that time. So um, I did, however, suffer from a lot of allergies when I was a kid. And um, so I, you know, I definitely was taking like Claritin, I remember as a teenager. And I, there was something about me that I just really resented having to take a pill every day. I'm not, even today, I can't take pill form supplements. I can only take liquid vitamins. So I just hated taking that pill. And when I was around 17 of my own, um, 
I mean, I can't even quite remember how I figured out how to do it, but I just started probably going in the yellow pages because this was still even, you know, early days of internet. And I found uh, an acupuncturist and went on my own and also just made a decision that I made a psychological choice. Like I'm not going to think that I'm sick anymore and I'm just going to stop taking this medicine and I started taking herbs and receiving acupuncture. And I have not taken a pharmaceutical since then, since I was 17 years old and it, it worked for me. So that was like kind of the gateway into learning more about alternative modalities. And I certainly always did have a passion for health and nutrition. I can remember in college, like to me, a fun night out was going to Whole Foods and like reading the labels on all of the alternative packages, which back in the late 90s, I mean, that was still pretty like new and exciting. So I, there was always an aspect of um, me that was very interested in that. I ended up pursuing a career in design, but I always felt that if I hadn't gone that direction, I actually would have gone more into kind of a, a natural health direction. And that interest is certainly come to the forefront again now as being a mother and, um, you know, guiding, guiding this experience of life for my two children. Um, you know, over the years, I've, like I said, you, you can meet one inspiring practitioner or get in touch with mo one modality and it'll lead you to another. So I've been fortunate to have, you know, really since my early 20s, a lot of experience with different kinds of body work and understanding how important it was, chiropractic care, nutrition, hydrocolon therapy. I mean, all of these things have really um, become like pillars in my approach to life. And Fortunately, I haven't really needed to go back to mainstream medicine. So when I was pregnant, naturally, I wanted to pursue um, the most natural path that I could. And for my first pregnancy, I chose um, to work with a midwife and do a home birth. Um, during the course of that pregnancy, I actually moved from New York City to L.A. And part of the draw to L.A. was that I could tell from just kind of my early research, I felt that there were many more birthing resources and sort of a, um, more to offer in Los Angeles towards natural birthing and like the culture here. You know, in New York, it was pretty limited. At the time, there was one... St. Luke's Hospital had a birthing center within the hospital where you could do natural midwife guided birth. And I think, unfortunately, that's since been closed. So it's pretty complicated to actually pursue a midwife birth or a home birth in, in New York City. Not impossible, but certainly there are more options here. And that was part of the draw for me. And that to, was about five years ago, right? Yes. Well, yes, exactly. My son is now four. So that pregnancy, and he was born in March of 2016. So yeah, 2015, 2016. Right. So um, I moved here and I, I, I gave birth and had the home birth and it, it, it was challenging. I had um, very severe tearing. I had a big baby. He was nine pounds and 24 inches long. So, um, you know, fortunately, there was no complications for him, for him, for him, and he was born really healthy. But 
um, the recovery experience for me was way more than I ever bargained for. And um, part of, in addition to how I chose the, the, the physical course of how to give birth, I think the other thing I wanted to share, because all of these sort of like go into creating the situation I was in when I, when I uh, met Dr. Chris is, is kind of where I'm driving to. <laughs> <laughs> also, while I was pregnant, I read um, many different philosophies on how to approach parenting, um, especially that tr- first year of, of raising a child. And I was really connecting on a heart level to more of the approach from the world of attachment parenting. One book I read that really influenced me was called The Continuum Concept, which is a book written by um, an anthropologist named Jean Leadloff and from 1975. And one of my kind of health coaches in New York had recommended it. And um, that book talked a lot about the importance of uh, baby wearing, co-sleeping. So, you know, when I was like, yep, that makes all sense to me. Of course, I was at this time also um, running my own business and and had a, a very, very time-consuming, rigorous job. So I think part of me wasn't um, take, taking really an accurate assessment of all of my life in whole, I was actually so focused on, on giving some kind of, you know, perfect, um, type of care to my child that I didn't really accurately see how I was going to keep myself in balance. So I had a mate. So after giving birth, I had a major injury. I couldn't even walk for 10 days or like go to the bathroom by myself. So of course, co-sleeping was actually the only option. I didn't have a night nurse and I was not planning. I didn't want to breast pump. Um, so I was just breastfeeding through the night. So co-sleeping seemed great because I can't stand up anyways. So I got into a co-sleeping pattern, which given the recovery that I needed, felt like the path of least resistance and seemed like it was going well because everyone was getting good night's sleep. Um, and then I was where, as soon as I could, Around four months, actually, was when I started wearing the baby because he started to be probably like too heavy to be in my arms. But um, I really took that pretty far. So I got myself into the situation where, like, for example, every single nap he was doing, he, because of the co-sleeping at night, I just couldn't quite figure out how to get him to nap on his own. So I was allowing him to nap on me in my ergo baby carrier. Mm. And, you know, at four months, that's one thing, but this was going on till 12 months. And then you're dealing, well, my son was very big, 100 percentile. So, you know, you see them going from 12 pounds to 15 pounds to 20 pounds to 25 pounds. I remember the only time I could really get a lot of work done was when he was sleeping. So he'd be sleeping and I wouldn't be standing and doing my emails for three hours. Mm. So on top of the perfect storm of that, Um, I also am already someone who's very like got loose ligaments and the combination of long-term breastfeeding. I breastfed that first child for 26 months. I just had a lot of lactin in my system that made the ligaments even more lax. So I basically found myself in major chronic pain in my back, of course, carrying this, having the loose ligaments, 
not having any time for, for, you know, strengthening, which I think was a message that I just really wish that I had gotten even before getting pregnant. How, um, that's like one thing I really like to tell moms is I, I think there's so much emphasis on preparing the body for pregnancy, but especially if you end up with like a heavier child, you really need to get your arms and back strong and you want to do that before you're pregnant because you know carrying them around is just no joke well I don't know if you knew this but I actually have uh it's it's still in dvd format because I've not getting gotten around to switching it out but I put out a dvd in 2004 on dynamic prenatal yoga which was based just on that fact so we definitely will be covering this in another episode because you are exactly right I always say the pain begins at birth because you're carrying your baby you're lugging their their stuff around and if you don't have that strength you're you're gonna fall apart yeah it's tough I totally agree. I mean, pregnancy, I was fortunate that I, I, I mostly had a pretty, you know, easy pregnancy with no complications, not too much to complain about. But, oh, yeah, from birth on, it was like, oh, right. just one thing after the next. And so you were, really so hard. You were putting your you were putting your child first and you were putting his needs ahead of yours. And you were kind of suffering in silence because you thought that that was the best thing to do at the time. Am I right? Exactly. And I feel like, I mean, I, I don't, I'm feeling more optimistic now, but for a while I was starting to think, wow, I've actually done an irreversible damage to my body. I mean, at a certain point, I just would find myself sitting on the floor just holding back tears just from feeling like burning pain in my low back all the way up to my neck. I had many times where I found myself waking up in lock neck, not being able to turn from side to side. I mean, major, major situations where also if you have to care for a child and you can't turn your neck. I mean, I can remember once my husband was traveling and I was home alone. I woke up, couldn't turn the neck and having to like call an emergency like thank god they've got zeal like on demand masseuse because nothing else to do and my 18 month old actually like allowing me to you know get work done because there's there was nothing I could do so so let me ask you a question Erin now that you've had that experience you wore your firstborn for a long, long time. And I was actually going to interject because in mentioning with that book, what exactly is baby wearing? Um, Because I mentioned it a couple of times. So what is this concept of baby wearing? And in that book, did they only address the effects on the children or did they go into some of what you experienced on your own body? And then when you answer that question, which is a great question, Dr. Toxel, is now, did you do the same thing for baby number two? What did you learn from that experience that maybe you changed and shifted? And since this is all about neurological development in the first few years, did you maybe see a difference between what was going on in the development yeah. of the two? So first, what is baby baby? What is baby wearing? Well, baby wearing is just a concept of that there's a benefit to the child to be close on the mother's body at all time. Um, there's like a 
kind of a hormonal exchange that's going on, just a closeness that this is like a positive way to care for the child and also allows the mom to be hands-free. I mean, I can remember the first time I strapped on the baby and I was like, woohoo, like let's load that dishwasher. You know, I can actually do something because when you're holding, you're very, you know, you're very limited. Maybe you just have one hand. I think the concept actually is great and has merit. I just think there need to be parameters around it. I mean, there there has to be sort of a, a, a time where you also realize like you've reached a threshold mm-hmm. in size or ability. I think in my case, having children that are more on the 100th percentile threshold of size means that um, you, well, they're... Like some children, by the time they're 25 pounds, they're old enough that they can actually walk or or at least crawl, move themselves around. When the child is reaching that size earlier, the development might not be there yet. So it's just like a lot for for the mom to carry around. Um, I think it's not a great concept. I just when I can remember when I had a wonderful doula who came over and she demonstrated for me how there's different methods to baby wearing, by the way. I mean, there's some traditional that is more about like a fabric wrap and there's different knots to do. And it's really beautiful. Um, Certainly should have its place. Um, but I think probably because then I got like an industrial sort of more backpack style that could, was really sturdy and could hold him. Um, I probably like let it go for too long. And, and I think, you know, part of what was going on for me, which I for sure changed in my second round was I was just, I had this fear of even letting my child cry for like even 30 seconds. Mm. Um, and I, I'm not an advocate of cry it out or letting a child cry, but I just think that there is still a space within reason. So, you know, people used to come over and say, wow, your child really never cries regarding my first son. And I'm like, yeah, because every single need is met within one second. I mean, it was a little bit over the top. It's, I guess I wish my first, my second mom self could have told my first mom self, like, it's okay if they cry a little bit. And there's also different kinds of cries. There's sort of a, I'm complaining type of cry versus like, I really need your attention right this second because something is truly wrong. And my second time around, I could start to distinguish between that a little bit. But um, because of all of the back pain that I went through and um, that habit that I allowed to create, I mean, my son still really my four-year-old really cannot sleep alone. So that was coupled with the co-sleeping and it just became very hard to ever separate. So I think these concepts can have their place and I really do understand the and, and, and think the philosophy behind them is beautiful, but I just think that there needs to be also like a plan in place for how you're going to make appropriate transitions. And I just somehow missed that guidance the first time and found myself stuck in a lot of ways in patterns that actually didn't serve my child or me. So for example, my older child, now I can compare to the younger one, was actually a little bit slower to walk and he really kind of bypassed the crawling phase, which is very important, the the cross crawl. And he had kind of more of a scooch. That was one of the things that um, 
we started actually like working on with, with Dr. Chris Mm -hmm. and he, he got there, but I think, you know, I can remember some of your feedback being like, actually all of this being carried in a sling and sleeping for hours with his legs hanging out, you know, may have actually done a disservice to the development of his body. So, you know, I thought I was doing this great thing and we were actually perhaps like both, it was a disservice to both of us. So when, when my second was born, I actually vowed never to wear that ergo baby. My husband wore it a little bit. <laughs> I was like, you yes. can wear this. Yes. <laughs> and, and so that brings in another one of my questions. I think it led to yours. So um, you brought your first son in to see Dr. Chris. And so um, if you feel comfortable disclosing the age, um, but what specifically did you bring him in for? Um, was it for the co-sleeping or, um, any other issues? I mean, I know I brought him in before he was one. I think, um, when he was seven weeks old, he had been sleeping well. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere was starting to have a little bit of, like hiccups and like burping, disrupting his sleep at night. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine suggested taking him to a cranial sacral therapist. And I, she said, this worked for me with my kids. So she, I wish she had recommended Dr. Chris because I could have met Dr. Chris sooner. She Mm -hmm. recommended somebody else that she just happened to know. And, and, and also I was new in town to LA. So I had to kind of rebuild like all my network from scratch. Um, So that treatment was very effective. I saw within one night it was resolved. And I thought it was very interesting what her diagnosis was because she could sort of see how, you know, as I mentioned, like it wasn't an easy delivery. I had a lot of suffering and his head was um, like stuck for a long time. So she saw things, she was able to read his body and tell me things about the birth. And I just thought that that was very interesting and talked about kind of like the organs being maybe a little pushed or pulled. So when I also saw the result and I was like, Oh, this for sure works. And then it took me a little while longer to find Dr. Chris, but certainly for under a year. But I know that that scooch crawl was one of the first things we were looking at because I knew that it was very important for them to have the cross crawl. And I was a little concerned that it wasn't happening for him. And then I was just in major need of constant adjusting. So (laughs) we started to come pretty often. And I wish I had really started with him from like truly like the first month, which is what I did with my second child. Right. Next, exactly. If there's a next time, I'm going to have you catch that baby. <laughs> hey, you know, I love being at birth. It's one of my favorite things. Like, yeah, welcome to the world. Let's just get you started on the right foot. Yeah. And that's why I do recommend that parents bring the babies in as soon as possible right after birth. Because why wait? Why wait till there's a major problem? Let's just get yeah. checked out and then just sort of reevaluate every month or so just to make sure those milestones are occurring. There's no weird scooching on the butt happening. Um, yeah. And and to help moms out. I mean, everybody needs help. And I've been there three times. So I've got practical experience as well as professional experience, right? So it's it, it 
can be helpful because there's some things that we have to be creative and there's no right answer. Um, but you had some healing to do as well before you got pregnant again with your second or while you, I forget, but you were either thinking of having another or you already were pregnant and you had some healing to do from what happened in your first birth. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because birth does make a difference for these babies and their development. So. Yeah. Well, um, so my, my, the birth of my first son was, was very, um, it was kind of rough and, and it, it caught me by surprise. I had prepared for that birth um, more from the modality of hypnobirthing which I think did serve me for sure in the early stages of labor. But given the size of my baby and um, the assessment from the midwives was that his head was stuck underneath my pubic bone, I ended up going into, um, I was directed to do four hours of hard pushing. And when we got to that stage, I felt like I would just remember thinking like I was not prepared and I can remember them saying push harder. And I just remember thinking like, there's no setting that's harder than what I am doing right now. Like the hypnobirthing was not um, as a tool was not working for me in that stage. Sure. So it was just a rude awakening because I, I just really thought that I was, I was going to, you know, conquer home birth and it just, you know, I felt like it kind of conquered me. I mean, we did it in the end. I didn't transfer it, you know, and the baby think I was healthy, but um, I had really severe tearing. The tearing led to a lot of scar tissue issues and I just had an overall, a lot of damage done to my pelvic floor. Um, In terms of even just, you know, postpartum getting back into shape that was also a problem because I was always someone who was really fit I did a lot of um, running rebounding and that was like off the table for me because the the integrity of my pelvic floor wasn't ready for that kind of movement and you know once you find yourself with something like that the resources are not so readily available like, what is a pelvic floor injury? I mean, I can remember my husband being like, what is a pelvic floor? Like, I don't understand what you're saying <laughs> is wrong. Because it's also kind of an invisible injury. Um, and I also had diastasis recti, which is more common, more common. And there's a lot of, um, I would say, more readily, like, accessible resources to remedy that out there if you, if you look. But I really had to kind of dig deep in both the medical side to the alternative side. I was really fortunate actually by way of listening to podcasts was how I found the woman who really helped me the most. So um, there's a woman named Kimberly Johnson, who's uh, been speaking out a lot of, and and she wrote a really great book um, all about public floor. And she basically had a birth experience very similar to mine and uh, wrote this book, sharing her personal process of recovery. And I happened to just find through thread 
a podcast and she referenced her mentor who taught her everything. And in that, she just mentioned that that woman happened to live in Los Angeles. So I looked her up. Her name is Ellen Heed. Have to say, she's one of the most brilliant people I've ever had the privilege of meeting and working with. And I owe her a debt of gratitude. And she, um, she really was the one that over, you know, a course of two years, we worked together to repair the pelvic floor, which required a lot of different type of work. It required internal work. It required exercise. It required um, one tool that was like actually very helpful in terms of scar remediation was working with castor oil, internal application of castor oil. And um, at the end of of this two years, what I can say is I went to my OBGYN who had said, your best shot is reparative surgery, which didn't really appeal to me too much because I thought, well, this whole problem is because there was a cut and it got stitched closed and there's scar tissue. So you want to cut out the scar tissue and sew it again on the premise that a cleaner, tighter cut will be better. I just didn't really want to do that. He said, he said in his 30 plus year career of delivering 7,000 babies that my tear was the worst he'd ever seen. And he had very, he was trying to manage my expectations of how much I could recover and kind of wanted me to face that it's never going to really be recovered. And maybe we could do these surgeries maybe after you're done having kids. And I remember the last time he said that, I can't even believe that I'm looking at the same person. Like this looks, he was like, I cannot believe how much you've healed. So just like to share that because it is possible. And I had a lot of fear um, when I did find out that I was pregnant. I was really excited because I really, I couldn't, you know, I was very excited about the baby, but I had a lot of fear about giving birth again. And I also didn't, a lot of times tears will re-tear in the same spot. And I just felt like, oh, I can't go through this again. So that fear motivated me to prepare for the birth in a different way. So I, um, the Ellen Heed, I called her and she recommended um, a woman for birthing prep. And her name was, um, oh boy, I'm blanking on her last name. Um, you can't remember it now. You can let me know and I'll find a way. Yeah. To I'm just having like a mom brain moment. <laughs> Look, I hear you. So much a phenomenal resource. And so I started, she basically is from the school uh, birth prep of birthing from within, which is an amazing book. And this is now what I would recommend to anyone who's going to give birth and wants to do natural birth. I was still, even though everything I went through, I was still determined to do a natural unmedicated birth. So I did birthing from within, which for me worked much better than just hypnobirthing because it like it did prepare me more for like the pain, like pain might be a real part of your experience. It doesn't have to be a part of everyone's experience. And I have had friends who've had ecstatic births. So 
I do believe that it's possible, but I didn't believe it was possible for me at this time. And I think that that was an accurate assessment. So it was better for me to just have a realistic approach to be like, yeah, it's going to hurt and you're going to kind of have to be tough and you're going to have to draw real strength and we're going to prepare you through this. So the exercises in that book were so effective for me. Like there's something so simple called the ice practice where you hold ice and alternate it. Um, and it's a way to like condition your nervous system to, to, to handle pain better. So I was doing a lot of things working with the birthing ball. I had done a lot of different types of exercise and um, didn't forget about keeping my back and arms strong because I knew <laughs> it was like on the other side this time. And so funny, I, I was a little bit afraid to have a home birth again just because of the experience I'd had. And I thought, oh, maybe the um, the tearing could have been better handled if I had been in a hospital situation. So I actually had in my mind decided to deliver at the hospital. And the day that I went into labor, I actually asked my husband to take our, our then three-year-old to the park because I just felt like I just needed some quiet time. And I thought I would be in labor for a long time. I knew I was in early labor, but I didn't think I was anywhere near time to go to the hospital. And thank goodness, my doc, I notified my doula and my doctor to say I'm in early labor, but I think it'll be a while. And thank goodness, I was home alone laboring using all these great te techniques that I had worked on. <laughs> and my OB happened to call me and he heard me have a contraction. He said, you know, I'm just going to drive over to your house. <laughs> well, thank goodness he did because from the moment that he rang the doorbell, the baby was born within 15 minutes. And my husband and my three-year-old showed up three minutes before he came out and were there to cut the cord together. And it was a three pushes out situation. My doctor came here thinking he was going to just evaluate how dilated I was so we could gauge the appropriate time to leave for the hospital. And he looked and he said, you're going to have this baby right now. So to me, the whole thing was amazing because in a way, like I was having like level 10 contractions, but I was so well prepared for them. I was thinking this is, we're just getting started here. So it was for me a very healing experience um, because, you know, there was trauma in the first delivery and this to just actually show that like, it, it can be, it's not easy. Birth and labor is not easy. It's called labor for a reason, but it could be, you don't have to feel like you're going to die. <laughs> and, and so it's such a fantastic empowering story because so many times you you have an experience and especially with birth a lot of times things can come up during labor and birth if you're not prepared for it I've seen it happen where it just hits the woman and it's just like whoa but you had a traumatic experience that then became a healing experience and not that this was the purpose of giving birth to number two but it's it's like this whole journey we go through as women to try and give our children the best start as possible. And you knew that you needed to heal yourself in order to do that, to have another child, which is amazing. And let me, I bow down to you. <laughs> I really bow down to you because, um, you know, I've done this three times. I didn't really have any major complications, but you know, when you're in the thick of it, it, like you said, it's like, you're in it, you're doing what you can. We're warriors. Um, we, we, we have all this power within us that we don't realize until we get into that situation. 
but how amazing that you were so brave to encounter this again. I mean, other women would say, you know what, forget it. I don't even want to deal with it. Just give me a C-section, you know, just give me the surgeries, whatever you got. I, I will take it because that was way too much for anybody to go through. But because of your strength and your belief that you, you could heal, your body could heal, you were able to have a great experience for yourself and give your baby number two a best optimal start for his life as well. So I, I seriously, mm-hmm. you are a hero. <laughs> well, and it's also encouraging. I'm coming up on the age. I'm 20. I'm going to be 29. I'm sorry. I'm going to be 30 this year. I am 29. <laughs> Time goes. And that's kind of about the age where I feel like that's more of the average when women start having their first child. And lately, just personally for me, I never used to have anxiety. I always had this faith in myself, faith in the natural power of women in that state um, that you inherently know what to do. And then hearing more and more stories where it, yeah, I was like that too. <laughs> crazier and crazier. And so I, I want to hear more of the empowering stories and it, this definitely is. And the empowering story could be, Hey, I went into this one way, the empowering story, I still went to the hospital, but I knew it was the right thing for this particular child. And that turned out to serve me well, or in your story, going, I'm going to use this trauma and heal from it, use it as a healing experience, which can be incredibly hard to do. And there have been a couple of situations where I've had to shift my thinking on approaching trauma in that way. So yeah, it's like, thank you for telling me your story because it does help me. And I definitely will be reading that book if I, when I do get pregnant. (laughs) You like that book because I, I mean, everything you just said is so true. I mean, we do have the power and I was like going into the first one being like, I trust my body. And, you know, I knew I was going to have a big baby. I'm tall. My husband's tall. We're, we're sort of, you know, tall family. So I knew we could be big and I just believe like my baby won't be bigger than I can birth out. And true but you (laughs) it's good to also be prepared and so I I just feel like that's kind of the overall theme of of what I'm trying to share by by speaking with you attachment parenting like the hypnobirthing it's it's all amazing but I I think that there's also another side of like real preparedness and tools that can help a person just finds like a little bit more of a, of a balance. And that's what I've done with my second. And, you know, I, I did co-sleep with him for the first month, but at four weeks, then I moved him into a bassinet next to me. Mm -hmm. And at three months I moved out of his room and by three months he could sleep by himself in his crib, 12 hours a night. And he could go down by himself in his crib for naps during the day. These are milestones that I never achieved with my older son. And frankly, when I would hear other people talk about that, it's like I couldn't even believe it could be true. Mm -hmm. I know what I'm saying, like, 
might not be everyone. I, I see a lot of people have different types of struggles. Some people really have struggles getting their kids to eat. I've been really fortunate. My kids are great eaters. I, I really had to struggle with my older one in this area of sleep. And I, I think it's actually not so sure. I even think it's because of his personality. I think it was just the approach that I took. And I was going to ask, have you noticed a major difference between your first child and your second child that you feel what intuitively feel was due to the amount of um, attachment parenting for your first child versus your second child? Um, well, I feel like I feel like I still actually am an attached parent for my second. I think I just didn't execute that so literally and I think it's been for the best because so he can nap alone for a couple hours a day in a crib but we're together for the rest of the day but you know the second one I just didn't feel that he literally needed to be attached to me for every moment every waking moment of the day which is kind of where I was for many months with the first so you know I started earlier trying to um, get him used to a little bit of independence. So I got him, uh, I know you don't love the baby swings, but in the beginning we got a little baby swing and we just put him in there a little bit. And he might complain, but you know, instead of picking him up after one second of crying, I would let it go 30 seconds. So it's not like I left my kid alone wailing in a room, but I mean, this was like a sort of a measured, let them just experience for a moment that they'll be okay after this. And I was like too afraid to do that with my first. And I just think that um, I've still taken a, an attachment based approach with the second, but given him a little more space and, I mean, I think this is also kind of a typical trend with secondborns. A lot of people will say they're more independent, but I do see that he's more independent. I see that he's more able to engage in independent play. He's now 14 months than, than the first one. So I think those like measured micro steps of, of allowing space for them to experience themselves and I think it's actually really positive for yeah. their own development and, and, and certainly I for mine. I do agree. And I, you know, I, we will be talking more about this. And the other thing too, with him being able to be just, you know, you're there, but away from you physically, did you notice any difference in the milestone aspect of rolling over, crawling, hand-eye coordination, that type of thing? Yes. And, um, I will be clear that, I mean, he has been coming for weekly appointments with you since he was four weeks old. We didn't, we did not bring in my, my older son until he was probably closer to 12 months and, and not with that frequency. So, so I made a real commitment to the regularity of chiropractic care. And I, I truly believe it has made a difference. Um, so between that care and a little bit of a different approach and you know who, who who knows he could also just be his he's his own man but he did uh reach a lot of the milestones a little bit sooner I mean he was an excellent crawler started crawling sooner the cross crawl everything you want to see um and now he's been walking he walked a little bit earlier and um people remark at his 
posture and, and he really holds himself. He's an amazing posture. He just can really hold himself. And even I see the way that he plays, the fine motor skills are so precise. It, I, I think it's really amazing. I mean, I can just see how he can take a very tiny object and, and put it in the right place. And so I see that he had to, he, his approach to his toys are very different than my older one, which was a little bit more of what I call like bam, bam, <laughs> you know, like if you give them the piggy bank and the coin, they're just shaking it. And then this, the second one is like understanding how the coin goes in and to take it out. And you know, I, I there's, I can't say exactly why that is, but you know, there is, I guess, a part of me that believes that it's a reflection of, of his development, just not having been impeded by some of those things that my heart was in the right place with the first one, but maybe, maybe weren't the best. Well, it, well, well he's coming around too. I mean, to each one, their own journey, but that's, that's, that's great. From, from which I am, you know, inclined to share my story. No. And I know that you're going to be helping so many people who have either experienced part of your journey or they're in the midst of it, or maybe they're about to have their second looking for other things that they can do. And it's true. We can't, we don't have one child and then a controlled child and we do one thing with one and then the other, we have to figure they come into our family at the time they're supposed to. And that's where they're at in their journey and your journey. And of course, like I say, it's, it's on the job training. There's no right or wrong answer. You try something and oh, that didn't work. All right, let's try something else. I mean, we're always searching how to do better, how to um, figure out creative solutions for when issues arise, and they're going to arise. No, no family is perfect that has just this, you know, no issues along the way. You know, that's just the way life is, and it would be very boring anyway. But as I always said, just one at a time. Just give me one issue to deal with at a time, not three at once. Just, um, but that's, Erin, uh, we so appreciate your input. And is there anything else, to wrap this up, is there anything else that you wish you knew or you wish parents to know? You've given so many great tips already, but anything else that comes to mind? Uh, as I feel like I have actually shared the, the big ones. Yeah. Like if you're about getting pregnant, buy some hand waves. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Absolutely. Um, if you want to be an attachment parent, make sure that your partner is willing to, to, to participate as well, because that's a big load for one body. Um, you know what, Erin, my philosophy was I carried that child inside of me for 10 months. It's your turn now. And that <laughs> was it. It was 10 Well, it is oh, 10 <laughs> No, I say it's nine months. It's really ten months. <laughs> it really is ten months. That's not full of yeah. It's not yeah, full and I mean, I went over my due date both times. So, right. gotcha. And I always look at it as you think you're going to give birth. I always would say like two weeks past when the supposed due date was, because that really is the normal time frame. And then it gets people off your back. Like, aren't you? Weren't you supposed to give birth? It's like, no, it's I'm due like a month from now. You just tell them way later that you're supposed to give birth. That's my tip for the day. <laughs> and so, just to kind of wrap 
this all up. Um, so what would your main advice to um, expecting parents be out there in terms of if they were going to approach baby wearing and attachment parenting? Um, what general consensus could you give based on your experiences? I think um, attachment parenting is a beautiful philosophy and needs to be put into practice with a realistic respect of, of what both parents' lifestyle is. I think an attached approach, there needs to be commitment from both partners because I think attachment parenting, if it's just one person who really wants to do it and the other doesn't, it's um, not going to be balanced. I think that, you know, you, you, you can do it and still also create the space and opportunity for your child to, uh, in a way that is developmentally appropriate, um, establish their own independence. And that ultimately serves both parent and child. And I think that, um, Baby wearing is amazing, but that like all things, there's a time and place for it. There's a moment in time. So, you know, just I, in those first few, in that first year, it's like the changes happen so quickly. Like just when you think they've got their sleeping rhythm, oh, they're a little bit older and then they need something different. And when you're a first time parent, it's like sometimes you get attached to like you think you've just got it figured out, like, oh, I just, now I know how to get through my day. This Urco baby is the solution. But two months later, when they've put on like six pounds and you, you can't turn your neck, it's like, have a plan in advance of how you're going to make those transitions. And I just, um, sharing my, you know, how it can go wrong, just so people keep that in mind. Well, honor, I think as a mom, we have to honor what's going on with us as well. And it's not just about what it is for our kids, but actually by taking care of ourselves, we're going to be able to do what is good for everybody, the collective family versus just everything focused on that baby. Yeah. I think that there was so much... um, there was so much that I at least grabbed onto about, you know, what would be my body's experience during pregnancy that um, I thought I was going to like, at the end of pregnancy, just feel better. (laughs) And then, and I just didn't really understand properly that, as you said, Dr. Chris, it was a little bit more of like the new beginning, whole new journey. And um, just, you know, the more you can anticipate what the demands on your body will be in advance, the better you can prepare for them. Absolutely. And I, I was certainly caught by surprise the first time. So, um, you know, you really do need strength and stamina to be a present and active parent. It's so important. I couldn't agree more. And you are definitely one of the strongest People I know, mind, body, spirit, and Erin, we can't thank you enough for joining us here today. Thank you, guys. Thank you for doing this podcast and all the amazing work you do. Oh, you're so sweet. And so I would just like to um, pose to any audience members listening out there, if you have any further questions, um, we will definitely get the names of all the 
Me, like, yeah, I just remember when mentioned Deborah Rowold yeah. was my amazing doula, and she has a website called The Unfolding Body, and she was an amazing resource in helping me prepare for the second birth. That's great, and I'm hoping that maybe at some point we can have these people actually on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these women have a lot to share, and yeah. I. Yeah, I feel like I'm so grateful for the women like you and, and them that have helped me on my journey. So we, we, we really all need each other. We do. Absolutely, Erin. Thank you. Thanks so much. And to our audience members, this has been Your Baby's Brilliant Brain. Well, hang on we a will... second. Let's sign off with Erin and then we'll just I... have a little wrap up of the show. Okay, then. Yeah. She didn't know. I surprised her. You did. (laughs) Sorry. All right, darling. I will see you later. Bye. 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 So in your professional opinion, Dr. Christine Anderson, what is your opinion on baby wearing? We just heard from a parent that experienced different um, aspects with two children So what would you have to say about baby wearing as a pediatric chiropractor and with your certification in functional neurology? Is there pros and cons to the actual physical development of the bones and muscles and also of the brain? Well, just a small question for me. Yeah. All right. (laughs) So one of the things I talk to with parents when I'm discussing physical stress on a baby's body is what, where they're putting them, what they're doing with them. And a general term I use is contraptions because those are the car seats, the baby bouncer things, the swings, which Aaron alluded to. Anything you're sticking a baby in that's putting them in a more upright position, even if it's an incline. Because here, here you kind of think about it. This is the common sense thing. What can a baby do, a newborn do? We're going to talk about sort of the beginning part, right? Can they sit up? No. They can lay down. And so you look at where the brain is and the body is in the development and work with that. So a baby is born with their spine in a C-shaped position. As they develop, so about three months of life, They're going to develop a neck curve as they start to hold their head up. And at about six months, they start to develop the low back curve. These are called lordosis as the the curves to get that final sigmoid shape of the spine. So if a mom wants to wear her baby for that first part of life, let's say the first three or maybe four months of life, I really like the slings that kind of keep them in that C-shaped position and and more of a laying down position. And um, that way the baby isn't going to have to try and hold their head up because a lot of these baby wearing where the baby is actually upright, they have their head here, usually they're facing mom. Unless they have really some good head support, which I haven't seen any that really do, then that baby's head is going to be lolling around because they can't hold up their head yet. And then as they get older and they're able to hold their head up, that might be a different situation, which then you can wear them. But it shouldn't be something that they're in it all the time. You want to, you maybe 
put them in there to go for a walk or get some chores done around the house, but not in the same position all the time because that pressure is going to be on the spine. It's not meant to sit up until they're able to sit up in about six months. Well, then sure, stick them in a baby wearing situation because they can sit up. That means they have muscles to hold them up. So I've heard people actually argue against the laying down, especially laying face up. I've heard people say that's actually bad for the baby's spine, that it puts unnecessary stress on it. What's your opinion about that? Well, I don't know where they're coming from because I think about what makes sense to me. And what makes sense is that this is a natural resting position for babies. Now, having said that, I do want parents to start tummy time even early on. And I recommend they lay the baby on their chest so that their head's right there. There's some space there because this way their head isn't into the ground. But they're going to start to like lift their head up a little bit, a little bit at a time. And that's how they're actually going to develop the neck curve by doing that. And the so-called strength. And that strength comes from the brain telling those muscles what to do. So it's not that. And when babies come out and parents say, oh, they're so strong, they can hold their head up. And I go, mm, maybe not. Maybe that's dural tension. And we're going to definitely be talking about that because it's actually something that you don't, um, your baby won't be comfortable with and it's not good for them, which is the covering around the brain spinal cord and the rest of the body, it's called the fascia. And I swear we're gonna talk all about yes. that in the future. So, but the, but the one time that baby wearing really might be helpful is if your child has something called hip dysplasia, which is where the hip isn't fitting properly into the socket of the hip. And so that frog leg position can be helpful. But again, you want to wait a little bit longer until they're able to have some head control. And so for that frog leg position, that's more when they're upright. So that's about the six months of age. Right. Recommending. Right. I mean, maybe, maybe a little bit earlier once they have head control, if they do have hip dysplasia. If but you don't want to leave them in that position the whole time because it does put a tremendous amount of stress on the sacrum too, which is that triangle shaped bone at the end of the spine. And um, that has all the nerves coming out to it, going towards the legs and the internal organ system in the pelvis. Excellent. So that answers the question about the spine. Now, what about the neurological development? Ah. Because I was investigating this earlier and I went to a general mommy website because I wanted to see what moms were conveying to each other about how long they wore their babies for. And I saw one saying like, oh, I wear my baby he's three years old or they're three years old, four years old, and I still wear them. So what's your um, perspective on that neurological development? Because don't, isn't part of that development coming from being able to walk and interact with your environment in a more direct way? Well, I think Erin kind of touched on this where she said, you can overdo it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wearing your baby if you want to, but they do need to experience that, interaction with the environment and the way that babies actually learn how to do things is they do it sort of by accident or by just sort of moving. So a baby's laying on their back, they're sort of moving and then they roll over to the side and then they roll all the way over and the brain goes, Oh wait, 
what was that? When I did this, this happened. And then this becomes more of a pattern. But if they're sitting on mom wrapped up, or if they're in a contraption, then they can't move. So babies need to move to be able to make those connections in the brain and go through their milestones. And this is what helps them go through them when they're supposed to, which is actually built into the wiring of our brain. So that's my take on it for what it's worth. Gotcha. And in terms of the baby wearing, one last question for you. Sure. Do you think that there is an age limit past three, four years old, aside from the actual weight of the child (laughs) affecting the moms? But in terms of that baby wearing, it's going to be different for, I should say, child wearing at that point. Do you feel that there is a point where it can be taken too far in terms of age? It's, that's a real hard one. Um, I, I guess I, when I was raising my children, um, pretty much you guys too, as soon as you could walk pretty much, you wanted to be independent. Mm. And obviously if you guys had a moment and you needed to be carried or were tired or something, fine. But I don't know about most moms out there. I'm a pretty strong person, but after a time, it takes a toll on your body. So there's something for everybody. I won't say don't do it, but I think there's definitely a a time to say, I'm not going to wear my child all the time because they do need to have their own experiences. And so if that child wants to be carried all the time and on you all the time, I think that's doing them a disservice. All right. That's what I have to say about that. Excellent. So I think that about wraps up our general discussion of baby wearing and attachment parenting for this week, especially we had an amazing guest on for this episode. Yes, we did. So... My um, contribution to this would be as somebody thinking to become a parent, because this is something that I want to start investigating now. I'm in those years where you start really thinking this out and seeing what you need to explore. So I appreciate Aaron and I appreciate Dr. Christine Anderson for at least giving some more insight, um, because I do think it's a very important topic. I do too. All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining us at Your Baby's Brilliant Brain. And we look forward to seeing you next time. All right, bye. bye.